Hi, this is Charles Wiz. Tony Silva. And we are Two Teachers Talking, and this is episode 55 of our long-running podcast about teaching English in Japan at Japanese universities and teaching in general and teaching in universities in general. And today we're talking about this kind of magical, mystical, mysterious topic, which is critical mass or how many students of a certain kind do you need to affect the class personality and the class dynamics. And that kind of, Tony, goes both good ways and bad ways, right? Well, they, they say it just takes one bad apple. I've never taught apples before. <laughs> <laughs> Have you? Not very effectively, no. Okay. Right. <laughs> they just kind of sit there and don't respond. They, they, they give you any feedback. tend to be unresponsive. Yeah. That's true, right. So it's... I think this is something, a topic that's come up a lot when teachers get together and talk. I know you and I have discussed this over the years, and it's the question of, in a classroom, let's say, of 25 or 30 students, and you have that great class, right? You know, it's excellent, and students are responding and interacting and engaged, and you're getting feedback, and it's just what you would call a fun class, the class you look really look forward to teaching. And... There's like really three or four really active, energetic, extroverted, really committed, um, motivated students. And they seem to just, I, I think for lack of a better word, rather than say inspire, I think infect the other students. And the question is, you know, how many of those students do you need? Or how does one student affect the entire atmosphere of the classroom? And I think that's the lead in for your story, I think, which you have about, you know, how even one student, you know, can do that. Yeah, and we, we talked about this a number of times, how that seemingly small number of people can affect the balance of a class one way or the other. And, um, yeah, my, my little story, this goes back to um, this was a long time ago <laughs> um, mm -hmm. when uh, I was teaching at um, rougher schools and, you know, just rougher students all around. This, this is the early 90s. And um, it was a point where, like, you know, class control was really an issue. Right? Not, not, not management, but control. I mean, these, these kids are rough and the classes were rough. You know, I was, I was a newish teacher, so it was kind of a baptism by fire kind of thing. And um, one of the things that um, I taught myself, learned to do, so to speak, after a, a year or two of this, um, and just watching the kids, just watching and observing and hypothesizing and trying things out, something that, that kind of worked for me <clears throat> when I would have a um, beginning, new class comes in and, uh, you know, the teacher and the students are, you know, both sides feeling each other out, everything else. Um, kind of intuited, you know, watching, you know, the classroom dynamics and, um, watched for the, what the students, how would respond to each other and look kind of for the, the likely class alpha and anticipate, you know, whether male or female, depending on the class, could be, you know, especially in a class of mostly, you know, mostly are all women, very likely would be female. Yeah, statistically, you do have that likelihood. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in, in a mixed class, it's generally a guy. Right. Um, and at a certain point, sometimes, you know, in a particularly ganky class, uh, it might be on the very first day, but certainly by the second or the third class, 
the the dynamic of the class is such that they're gonna they're gonna test the teacher, they're gonna test their limits, and uh, one of the guys or one of the girls is gonna put their foot out there and say, okay, what are you gonna do about this, right? I mean, whether it's like you know talking out loud or not opening a book, what is this? But you but you you know you, you wait for the wait for the leader to do it. But you've identified as the as, as the as the alpha in the class, and then you come down really hard on that person. Uh, you know, whatever you know, depending on the, the specific class, whatever it takes, you take them out in the hall, dress them down, and once you've done, taken down their leader, then the rest of them just fall right into line. It's okay, I'm not going to do that. Um, what you don't want to do is start bullying the weakest, right? Because the, you lose everybody's respect, right? In addition to being a really bonehead move. I've seen teachers do that when I was a high school student, um, where uh, some of the teachers were as guilty of bullying as some of the some of the kids and stuff. Well, so you got to you got to be very careful it? with this, right? But um, you know, if you've got again, be a strong student, um, you make an example, and um, yeah. It kind of worked, so I was happy. So this is critical mass equals one. In this case, yeah. In this case, right? Mm. There's a certain situation where you do have that one student who seems to be the right alpha or the leader type. And so what are, okay, so specific behaviors that would help you identify that person where this is, how do you know that that person's the alpha? Um, I don't, there's a whole bunch of little things, right? It's, it's as much as um, what the person, what that student does as much as it is the way that the other students react, right? Okay. Who's cracking the jokes? Whose jokes are they laughing at? Whose behavior are they mimicking? Um, you can, if you watch them, you know, you, you, it's kind of hard because you're doing two things at once. You're teaching, you're going through your lesson, you know, everything else, and you have to really kind of watch the other interaction, completely independent of the class, what's happening, what's going on, because there's a lot that's going on, right? Uh, beginning of class, right. so... But, so much going on. Yeah. So you know who's who's starting to step out of line, and what are the other students' reaction? Are they watching through the corner of their eye? Are they ignoring? Are they disgusted by it? Are they amused by it? Um, those kinds of things. And then there's there's no hard and fast rule, right? Right. I'm thinking in terms of more experienced teachers. This is something we've kind of picked up by osmosis yeah yeah but i'm thinking i'm thinking what would what would we say though what would we say to like the the you know the first year second year teacher what you know concrete things could we give and i think what you said is like watch for who's joking right who's the one who's talking while you're talking right usually that's an indication and do does that spread so if this one student starts talking and the other students start listening to that student or you see it kind of you know the heads turn a little bit while you're talking, that's a good sign that that student has an influence on the other students. Yeah. And so what you did at this point is uh, you had this one student and you kind of just took him out of the classroom? Uh, it depends. It depends how severe the student's behavior, how extreme the student's behavior was. Sometimes it's enough just to come down on them in class. Um, sometimes if it's, you know, it's really a rough class, then you may want to take them outside the class. For, for dramatic effect, right. um, but to, it's a it's a tough balancing act. Again, and this is harder for somebody without a lot of experience. But what you're trying to do is establishing control, but at the same time, without 
destroying an open, non-threatening learning environment. It's really tough balance. Yes, yeah, you're right. That's it's so important. Um, the idea of, and this idea of control, which I think some people might react against because it's not a word we want to use too much, but the idea when we say control means that the students voluntarily provide or give to the teacher the authority or understanding that they are the facilitator of what will happen. And what that means really is that students are ceding power to you. Right. And it's not that you know you're 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 like, you know, controlling the whole environment. But one thing that is always a good thing for beginning teachers, and this is so, you know, trying to be really concrete here, is all you have to do on the first day is ask a student their name and their number if they act up. So if I have that kind of student, right, you know, I can, and I remember I was teaching a class, was at a university, and it was an economics department class. And sometimes the economics departments can be kind of interesting at some schools. And I walked into class, and as soon as I started talking, the bell rang, a student in the back row put his feet up on the seat in front of him and pulled out his lunch and started eating. Well, there you go. There's your guy. Yeah, yeah there's, there's my guy. I mean, this guy. And now here's the difference between, I think, having a few years or some years of experience under your belt and being a new teacher is I think as a new teacher, I would have been freaking out. But as a, you know, having, like, I think at this point, like 12 years of teaching experience, I was like, oh, thank you. Thank you for making it so easy to identify you right away. And I immediately just walked up to that student and in a voice that was loud enough for everybody to hear, say, excuse me, what's your name and what's your student number? And then you, you know, write it down on a piece of paper or whatever. And then you say, okay, you do understand that you do not put your feet up in my classroom and you do not eat lunch when in the classroom. And whether or not that student listens to you at that point in time is not important because you've marked it for the rest of the class. Right. But usually most students will back down at that point. Mm. But yes, there is the concrete behaviors of acting out. Now, my question is, and you and I have both taught at what we, you know, would be considered to be more difficult schools than the schools we're currently teaching at, I think. Right. We very are I think, very lucky right now. But I can remember in the beginning of my teaching career. Very true. Same. And, you know, there's a certain point, I think, where if you have X number of those kinds of kids, those kinds of students, it gets really difficult or almost near impossible to teach. What's the number, do you think? Let's say you've got a class of 25. I can deal with one or two of those kind of alpha kids who are alpha in the negative way, right? right. What happens when you get five or six of those kids? Does that mean that it's too much critical mass? that it's too hard to overcome? Or do you think it's still possible to turn the class? What's your experience there? Um, I don't think, I don't think it's, as you said, it becomes impossible to teach the class. But I think if you're getting, like for example, in a class of 25, if you've got five or six, I think uh, unfortunately, it's gonna require you to rethink and teach the class in a different way. Um, if you've got six kids like that, basically you need to redo your class um, and teach to those six and hope that the other 19 can kind of adapt and, and kind of go along. Okay. And when you say teach to those six, what, what, what kind of changes would you implement? Well, it, it, depends on, it depends on exactly what they're doing, right? And that's part of it. You really have to figure out 
in, in that situation, like they got to identify what the problem is, mm-hmm. right? So is it because they're not socialized and they don't know what being in a classroom is? Um, is it a defense mechanism because they don't understand anything you're saying and they don't want to everyone else to know that? Um, is it they just hate English? Uh, maybe they, maybe it's you. Maybe you turn their stomach, <laughs> and they just have it. You know, they from the day they uh, no, walk in the classroom, possible. that's not possible. They hate <laughs> this guy, and they're going to make his life miserable. Because I did that to my some of my high school teachers too. Um, as you got to ID the yeah, problem, well. and then figure out where to go from that. Because a lot of sometimes it's because the material is way, way, way too difficult. And sometimes they'll fool you, and then they seem they seem like idiots. But maybe it's just not challenging enough. Um, so how you change your teaching will depend on them. You really got to figure out a way to have them tell you how they need to be taught. Um, in a class, for for example, in one of these classes where uh, class was large, thirty five, forty, and I had probably five or six. Um, guys who were not that into it. And I had a bunch of, you know, some others. I had, you know, other kids who were just like, you know, terminal wallflowers. I had kids who were, you know, really, really, you know, into it, but really, really slow. Um, and I could not in any way teach the way I would normally teach this type of class where, you know, activities, because they wouldn't stay on task. I had to let them, and I don't know, I don't remember exactly how, I figured this out probably just out of frustration. I started trying anything. What they wanted, what the way that they needed to be taught, um, was to what we came to do, and with again with you know dumb pure dumb luck, some some good success. Um, I give them a model dialogue on the blackboard. I give them time to make their own, write their own, practice it, recite it. And recite and release. And you come up and you can, with your partner, and you do your dialogue, then you can go home. They loved it. Hmm. They had a ball. (laughs) Not what I wanted to do, but um, with that mix of kids, it was what I could do. Hmm. So... Yes, I've I've had that situation, but it hasn't worked so well for me, mm-hmm. right? And I think this goes back to something. Uh, um, one of the uh, articles you sent me, remember that it said every teacher has successful classes when they talk about their classes. Mm. <laughs> I'm trying yeah. to be, um, I'm trying to be more honest about it. And I've been successful sometimes, and other times it's just been, uh, you know, fifteen weeks of just very difficult times for the students and for myself. I've had those and, too. Yeah. Right, and in those situations, I just end up, you know, going more by the book. I I get down. I say, okay, I'm just going to stick more with learning outcomes, and you know, just do that. And it's hard because. You know, I, we can look at it from the negative perspective, right? How many rough kids or difficult kids do you need? And I don't know. I think, you know, once you get to that 20%, 25%, and if those difficult kids are extroverted, mm-hmm. it's really difficult mm-hmm. because then they're really having an impact on the class. Mm. If they're introverted, I think it's far easier to deal with them. Um, they'll just kind of give you more resistant behavior that's 
just them doing it. So that's okay. But I'm wondering about, you know, what other specific things can we do as teachers to identify those students and the reasons? Because that's what you talked about was the reasons for why they're acting this way, right? Where you identify the behaviors and then you have to think, you know, really, is it that maybe the student's just not understanding and they have a lot of pride? Yes, and, yes, you know, yes, um, yes. Or they don't understand and everybody knows that they're not the most academically oriented and they their self-valuation in terms of how they're, they judge themselves and in terms of how they feel they're being judged by their peers is based on their acting out in class and being the loud student who argues with the teacher or rebels against authority. And it's important, again, if to identify that. If you can identify it, then usually you can remove, or sometimes you can remove the, the impetus for why they're acting that way. But it's important to try to identify that if it is possible. I think that's a hard thing, though, often. It, easiest... yeah, it can be a hard thing, um, but I, I think um, something that um, often goes overlooked because it's it's hiding in plain view. Um, ask. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just to sit, you know, talk to the kid. You know, you know, ask, him ask him. It's like you know what's going on. He's obviously, you know. There's, you know, I'm trying, you know, you know, take him aside, you know, no anger, no threatening, just kind of, you know, there's a problem here. Um, I got this, we got this classroom, you're bothering other kids. Um, what, how can we make this better? You know, what's bugging you? Kind of thing. Um, it can work. Okay. So, <laughs> I don't know that it has ever for me. But <laughs> I don't know, but so you're pulling four or five students out, and as you said, right, it's forcing the whole revision of your classroom and a lot of more of your teaching time now is being spent on right the classroom ma control management issue right and you've got yeah okay. you've got uh, this the, the group of let's call for a better like better word troublemakers um yeah every class you've got this you know got a mix of different types you've got um these um alpha types who kind of are the extroverts and they influence class one way or the other you've got um by the really shy people, you know, the wallflowers that um, barely utter a peep. Um, you've got uh, the some outliers for whatever reason, either really bright or um, you know re really troubled. Um, and you got the, the the big mass of you know, average kids, um, and then along with the um, the uh, the more extroverted types, I guess, and maybe. Another maybe group maybe called influencers, or you know they kind of follow the those extroverts a little bit and kind of determine maybe kind of act as a throttle of like how far can they go? It's like we're going to follow you with this, we're not going to follow you with that. Um, and sometimes those can make as big a difference as the 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 extroverts, right? Because if the mm. the extroverts aren't getting the attention that they want, they'll modify their behavior to to please their audience, right? It's an interesting thing, the idea that when I think of critical mass, when we talk about this topic as to how many um, extroverted positive students do you need to really affect the class, the idea is that maybe critical mass revolves around the students who are sensitive to that. Right. 
that's far more important than how many of a specific type that we're looking at, right? At either end, the I guess you called them the influencers, mm -hmm. the influencers. Mm -hmm. Sounds like like a Marvel comic <laughs> movie, but for lack of a better word, the students that can affect or that other students will follow, then maybe what's really the important question is to identify, ah, uh, who are the students who will follow the alphas mm. in the class? Might actually have a bigger effect because if you have four or five, let's say, alphas in a classroom or four or five students who are acting up, but the other students were really committed to learning, then, and they're not really that extroverted, they still will exert an influence over the classroom. And I've had that situation before where I had one student who was really causing trouble. And I finally got to a point where I turned to the students and I said, okay, I have tried, and very publicly talking about the student, I said, look, I've tried to deal with this problem. This is bursting out, these unacceptable ways of talking. You as a class have responsibility for this. I'm going to walk outside of the classroom for fit 10 minutes and you're going to have a talk as a classroom about how you want to conduct the rest of your class. Because if this continues, then this person's behavior is going to impact your grade. And I know that there's all sorts of things wrong with it, but I was a, I think it was my second year or third year teaching in Japan when this happened. I was at the end of my ropes, you know, not understanding any of the cultural rules. The only rule I really understood at that point was the nature of the group. So I thought that I would use that. Mm -hmm. And I came back in and the student was in line. They started behaving much better because one of the things is that they are part of a group and students identify as being part of some group as I think they do everywhere in the world and trying to use that peer pressure in a positive way. But instead of just talking about, you know, those, the negative sense, the question becomes now, how many really motivated, positive, gung-ho students do we need in a class, do you think, to really take it to that, you know, the, that level, I think, where we kind of go, wow, this is a great class. I mean, those great classes that you've had, has it been 100% great students, or has it been like one or two, or, you know, what, how would you describe it? Well, I don't experience? think I've ever had a class that's been 100% great students. Um. <laughs> I, I, I have, actually, by the way. <clears throat> You know, you're lucky. It was like, yeah, it was like <laughs> my, my fifth year of teaching. And I told them, I said, you've ruined my teaching career. I'll never have a class like this. Mm -hmm. And I found out actually over the years I was right. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah, I've got maybe the closest I've gotten is about half. Okay. Um, but um, I think I think percentage wise, I think the same numbers apply. We talked about, um, you know, 20%, 25%, like five or six out of out of 25 I think it's really hard to screw up a class that's got six gung-ho students in it out of 25. Um, I think that's, I think you're home free with it, with that, that large of a number. Um, I think it, it works either way. Uh, probably the, the same number, same amount. 20% is, yeah. this is an intuitive thing. We don't have any research. We, yeah, I have no up. studies on it. I mean, but that's we, a feeling, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, studies about, <clears throat> You know, conformity, the, the ASH conformity studies. No, I don't know about these. Can you um, explain a little bit about those? Well, that's um, it's from the, I think, 1950s, 1960s, um, where they, um, I guess the famous one, is, it's a it's a classroom kind of situation, and there's seven or eight people, and uh, there's they're all Confederates except for one. 
and they're given something, you know, like, like three lines. And you have to choose which line is the same line as the other line. And all the Confederates give the wrong answer intentionally. And then how often does that, the, the, the subject, <laughs> because of the peer pressure, go along and say, yeah, this is, <laughs> this is the line that's the same line as this one. It's obviously wrong, but the other six people <laughs> have said that this, this is the answer. Oh, okay, that's the answer. And they'll, the, the, the person will say that just to go along, right? Sounds like a jury study. <laughs> yeah, something like, well, that's, you know, that's, that's where it's it takes place. You know, that's right. where it plays out. Okay. Um, and um, the other one was the uh, was one that's actually a lot more fun. Is it, is it Milgram? The Milgram, um, the, the shocking. The, the shocking. shocking, yeah. The, yeah, one, the, 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 the shocking, <laughs> shocking, the shocking, the shocking, shock, shocks, yeah. the shocking shock experiments. That's Milgram, right? Yeah. So. And there's also, uh, there's also the Stanford prison studies. Those I don't know. Oh, that's where um, I forget the name of the psychologist. He got volunteer students at Stanford, I think, and they created like a mock prison. And some students were arbitrarily assigned to be guards, and some were arbitrarily okay. assigned to be prisoners. Okay. You know about this, I think. And you know what happens? I mean, the guards just, by the nature of having all the power, sure, start, you know, exhibiting very, very negative and, um, you know, almost uh, sadistic kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. And the prisoners end up, you know, becoming submissive and having lots of psychological problems. And this, they had to actually stop the experiment, I think, after a week or so because it was really it scary. got out of hand. But that's, yeah. of course, obviously something that could never be done now based on the, you know, our sense of ethics. Right. But right, right peer pressure um, is a powerful, powerful thing. Right. And uh, one of the things that you mentioned, you talked about when you had the experience in, uh, well, you, very early on and didn't have a lot of the teaching experience, that feeling of being at the end of your rope um, is something that all teachers have felt and experienced at some point. Um, you know, you feel like you're out of, out of options, you're backed into a corner. And that's when we tend to make our biggest mistakes. And yes. we don't always make mistakes, but that's when we tend to um whether it's um doing the wrong thing or overreacting or, or pushing too much it's because you're you're panicking right um and i guess it's I mean, just kind of a, a little general warning out there um yeah when you're when you're feeling that you really need to kind of as you did step out of the classroom right um to step back and it's kind of and, and I, i've had to leave a classroom in the last two years i, I talked about it before yeah, the first day of class where the students were just totally unresponsive. And it's like, I don't, <laughs> this was the last day of the class, you know, last day of the week, last class of the, of the day. It's like, I don't have, I don't have this kind of, <laughs> you guys, we're going to have to do something here. Um, but uh, yeah, take a deep breath and step back. Um, because it's really easy to, to screw things up, especially on the first day, you can screw things up for the whole year. Um, but yeah, getting back to uh, the you know the idea of critical mass, how many of those kids, and then what you do with them, um, and how you get them to uh, come along. Yes, yes, I think that's a good point. That you know, how do you get them to come along with you? What right, and using using that peer pressure that you, know, you talked about, right? Yes. Uh, get that on your side. Um, and in, in the case, what you did specifically is getting, okay, <laughs> there's this one student and there's this group 
you guys, <laughs> you guys do this. You guys I can't handle do it. it. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. was an end of the rope thing. You guys handle it, or you're going to also suffer. Sorry. Yeah. Yes, but the you I, I let like what you said about that, or <laughs> the honesty, right? That you get to the end of your rope, mm. and as you said, everybody I think gets there. And it's a terrible place to be because I know oh, yeah. that the end of the rope doesn't mean that I'm dangling, I'm going to die. It means I don't have anything left in my, my toolbox. In my yeah, bag I'm out of, of options. I'm, I'm out, out of options. Everything I have used that has worked before has failed and failed and failed and I don't know what to do. And I, this is what I hate when I get to that point is I always revert to becoming the most boring teacher in the world. I just revert to the textbook. You could and do worse, right? I mean, that's, I don't that's know. Not I don't know. Uh, no, uh, no, no. You can do a lot worse. You can do a. <laughs> you could end up hitting somebody. No, no, that's uh, you not. Can no, you, no, you can't do that. End up in the hospital yourself. Um, okay. No, there's all kinds of worse things. There's our worse things than. Uh, it's not optimal, but there's. Right. It's not the worst case yes. scenario. Yes, and the other thing I want to go back to Tony is when you said where you've walked out of a classroom. And. I remember years and years ago where I had worked at a place, and I'd been working there for, I think, 10, 11 years, so I had a lot of um, people were trusting of me, especially the head of the English program at this, this college. And I remember I got to a point with the class, and this was, I think we talked about this, there was a period during the 90s where there was a real change in the student attitudes in Japan, I noticed. Um, a lot of the good manners just changed and students became kind of a little bit more hostile, more reactive, more disrespectful. But I had a class and it was a really difficult class. And I should point out this was all women. Yeah, these were children of the boom, huh? Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Of the it was that's exactly it was no it was children of people who had been raised during the bubble. Right. Boom, right? So that these were they had been parented, I think, by people who just had changed. We had very, very different values than previously, but that's a whole yeah, other the podcast. The students came to the classroom with a really strong sense of entitlement. Yes, yeah, you remember. So I think it was I like about 95 well. to about 98, I think. Right in that period, it was terrible. They really, yes, they had, I remember a student turning to me and saying, why should I listen to you? The only reason you're teaching at this college is because you're a native speaker. You're not qualified. I actually had a student say that to me. Hmm. And, you know, think about that. There's, there's you know, I, I couldn't imagine a student saying that to me now. No. Right? It would be unusual. So I remember at one point with this class, I just realized I was going to explode. So I looked at them. I think it was 45 minutes into a 90-minute class. And I said, okay, everybody, class is finished. You have your homework. I am leaving now. I will see you next week. I cannot speak with you anymore because I'm too angry and upset with your behavior. And I walked out of the class. And I immediately went and found the head of the program. Right? And I... I said, was said to him, I said, you know, I just want you to know I <laughs> had to walk out of the classroom. I had to stop the class because I really felt that I was going to lose my temper and I didn't want to do that. So I just want you to understand why I did that. And this guy, you know, just looked at me and he, he was a, um, a pretty intense guy and just said, thank you for knowing when to leave. And... Part of that message was he knew that I had stayed before, right? But he was accepting of that. Mm. And so, right, sometimes, you know, you should, if, if this is happening every semester, you're walking out of one class because you can't handle it, then 
you got to look at yourself, right? But if it's never happened before and you've been teaching for six, seven years and you realize you're about to lose it at the college level, it's very different to get a junior high school, high school, or elementary school, but to just walk out and just, you know, because you don't want to lose it with the students. Right. You can't. I mean, scolding is one thing, right? You know, you can scold your students. You can tell them, you know, look, you're not giving me feedback and, you know, and you can scold them for that. But if you really feel you're about to get to a point where your voice, you know, you're going to start yelling, then you you can you can express anger any way you want. As long as it's controlled, you control how much you you, Right. But if you feel that it's, you know, your emotions are taking over and you're you're, you think there's a chance of losing control, then you got to go. So just. The point is that I think that's a feeling most teachers have had. Yeah. And we're not allowed to, again... If you haven't, you will. <laughs> you ha- right. It's like, it's like right, right. there are two kinds of people in the world, those people who have had their hard drives die and those who will have their hard drives die. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, it's not talked about, right? Nobody ever says, man, I, 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 I found myself at the edge of the, my rope and I had to just walk out of the classroom and leave it alone. I wasn't capable of controlling my feelings and emotions there. You know, we have to, you know, you have to give trust to a teacher if that teacher has a record of never doing that, right? Mm-hmm. Teacher who's done that like four or five, six times and you're thinking it's a little different. But again, that admission of I, I'm i at my, the end of my rope and it's dangerous for me to stay here because I might say something wrong. So always, you know, just again, for anyone who's starting out, um, understand that people have felt that way the other thing though um that when you're dealing with that kind of situation where there's so many students like i i think i once had a i'm thinking of this one group that i had and I, they must have been 23 24 students and 19 of them felt that they were entitled you know to whatever that they you know that idea that they were the customer yeah. right and that yeah. was just a class that you know i couldn't get through to so it's just okay Let's get through, you know, what we're supposed to cover in the material. So sometimes it's really, really hard. What do you think, though, Tony? Um, it's a, it's, it, it's really hard to generalize, I think, because a lot, of, every mix, every classroom is unique. It's every class has got its own personality. Um, uh, the teacher himself, herself, is also part of that chemistry mix. And I'm not talking about teaching styles and say or learning styles, if you admit that those that exist. I know that's under question these days, but um, um, the the whole idea of class personality is uh, it's unique, and they're all so different from from one yes. another. And uh, what you know, there might be certain behavior patterns are the same, but you know, the reasons might be completely different. Um, I had the as an example, there's a, one of the schools that I teach at now, um, a large percentage of the students, it's a, it's a women's university, and a lot of the students there come from the, the university's high school. And so in the classroom of uh, 20, um, about one third kind of know each other. Some are friends, some are acquaintances. Sometimes at the beginning of the year, they'll coalesce into one group, and then there'll be the others. Sometimes that those students from the high school split into two groups, place themselves at opposite ends of the classroom. You've got two small cliques with the other unwashed mass in the middle. Um, 
They'll manifest in different personalities. Sometimes, sometimes it'll be, sometimes it'll all work for you. Um, sometimes one of them will be really into it and, and gung ho to learn. The others will be, you know, a little bit less serious. Um, and uh, it's kind of interesting to watch that group in the middle try to decide, you know, I'm going to go with these guys. I'm going to go with these guys, or or they sometimes they make this whole entity of their own. Mm. And um, it's every, in every clay. Even though that same pattern each year at this school is not so different, they still are very, very different. Um, each one is unique. And I have two periods of this, one right after the other, and they're completely different from each other. Every year. Every year. They're, theoretically, they're the same level. Um, and each time the two classes have such distinct personalities. Um, and it's really, yeah, I, mean, I really have a hard time uh, generalizing. You really got to take each class on its own. Yes. Yeah, you probably can hear me smiling. <laughs> right. I, it's exactly, I know where you get exactly, to, um, basically, they should be the same students, right? They've on been paper. assessed, yeah, on right? Paper, they've, they been streamed. Be they've been streamed. They're at the same school. Their, their English abilities are about the same. They're in the same department, right? Their motivation is indicated approximately by what school they're at, et cetera, et cetera. And you go and you teach one, and it's one experience, and then you teach the other, and it's a completely different experience, and you haven't changed anything. Right. Right? You've done exactly pretty much. You know, it's like the one where you do the same jokes in one class and another class, and one class everybody's like laughing and really appreciating your jokes, and the other, <laughs> there's just dead silence, right? And uh, so, but let's go through now, the because um, we've talked about, you know, that it seems to be that at about 20% is our experience, I think right? so. I think that's what we're calling yeah, it. That yeah, you, the, those those students can really turn the classroom. And we're not really trying to figure out the strategies there. We're just really trying to figure out, you know, is it really that 20%? But let's go through and talk about, from our experience, what are the different kinds of class personalities, right? See if we can really kind of define those. And one of the things I have to say is that this is, I guess, what's called a shout out to all my teachers who I had in elementary, junior high school and high school and maybe even college is until I became a teacher, I never knew that classes had their own personalities. And I'm just wondering whether or not when I was in one of my classes, if the teacher just went, oh, no, not this group. Right. Um, I never knew that. Right. We just thought that we were a class when we were going through or that's how it was. So. We know that there is what we would call the Genki class, right? Genki being healthy, active, energetic, right? Everybody's had those kind of classes, right? The ones right. where you go in and the students are just bubbling over and you're actually working hard to keep them from, you know, yelling out the activities, right? We can go the opposite way and there's what I would call the deathly silent class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's the ha uh, for? As in? Just remembering. Right. And that's um, also, you know, it's just difficult in a different way. So those are the two extremes, right? Is the really energetic class that does all the activities, they're really engaged, enthusiastic. The other students where, you know, I think you could ask a question and no one will give you the answer. Right. And there's no talking. And when you put them into pair work or group work, they're very silent with each other. What are the other ranges, do you think? Well, I, th I think you can just just fill in the spectrum. Um, you know, you get the ones that are, you know, are kind of somewhere on that range, right? just lukewarm, you know, and just like, okay, well, this is, you know, another class, and here we are, and we know what to do. Your student, he's the teacher, and we're the students, and we know what we do. And then there's 
um, in addition to the silent ones, just the ones who are, you know, kind of dead set against you, you know, sit down, cross your arms and say, go ahead, dare, I dare you to teach me anything. Yeah, right, right. Uh, okay. And then you kind of get to all classes that are like ultra ganky, ultra energetic, but they can, they can go both ways, right? And they'd be really energetic and gung-ho for the class or really energetic about everything else. <laughs> their social life and their boyfriends and, and everything their else has nothing to do with the classroom. Class, right. It's like just right. you get them to settle down and focus on the, on the, on the lesson is hard. Right. Um, but uh, I, I, guess maybe, I think they probably all fall into those categories, right? Either they're really energetic and into the class or really energetic out of the class. Or they're just kind of lukewarm, um, the deathly silent class, and then the um, the <laughs> the anti class or whatever you want to, the, the Satan spawn. I don't know. I mean, the ones that really are you know are they they come to that university to make your life miserable. It's kind of like that Star Trek episode where they go through the uh, the transporter or whatever, and, and they come into what is it? They're doppelgangers, right? And they're like all evil or something, right? There's the the students who. And I think there's no other way to put it, but who seem to have never had a positive learning experience in mm -hmm, school. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I've had, again, this is that critical mass thing. You know, if it's one student or two students out of 25, it's okay. I can deal with that. But it's really hard when it gets into that 20%. Yeah. Right? Where those students just, I'm sorry, you know, where and you, it's it's obvious in a way that it's like, wow, this student has just had any joy of learning burned out of them. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's not me. I am just the representative of everything that is distasteful in their life. Right. And, oh, that's a difficult, difficult situation. Well, I think, I think you hit on a really good point. Um, in that, um, especially, you know, again, to think about an inexperienced teacher, you got to be really aware of things that you can change and things that you can't. Right. And a lot of times the things that affect uh, the class personality, um, as, as you said, have nothing to do with you. Um, it could be the class that they had before yours. It could be the fact that you're before lunch or after lunch. It could be that it's a first year. And these are not morning people. Um, what their high school experience has been like. Um, and, and, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we talked about uh, the school culture itself, right? Right. Um, there's, you know, peer pressure for the from the student body. It's like how well that school culture is a match for these students. Does it, do they match well? Is it augmented? Does it make them better? Does it make them worse? All kinds of factors go into that mix. And, and, and part of it is you, things that you can do, but some of it, things that you can't do. Uh, there are, you know, things about your teaching or your personality that you can modify and change. There's certain things that you can't. Um, you you are who you are. You you can't walk into the class and be somebody that you're not. That's a really great point, Tony. That's and, a really and, important and, point. Yeah, and if and if you know, it doesn't sit well with some of the kids. I mean, there's there's your options are kind of limited. It's, you and I said you know, as you said, maybe. What you're left with is going to the textbook. Yeah, I don't know. I want to go back to that. It's a, one of those things that I think takes a number of years of teaching to finally learn is that you are who you are. And you can't change that. 
Right. You you can't change your core personality. You can change some of your behaviors. You can set, change some of your strategies. Yeah, your there tactics. you go. There you go. You can you reflect on yourself. Right? And you can change class activities to match what they can right. and can't do and so forth. But right. yeah, you can't change who you are. You have to look at yourself and you have to, you know, there's some actions or reactions or things that you can change about yourself, but your core personality can't be changed. And I'll, here's a good example of this is that... Um, no matter what I do, I'm not going to be an introverted person. <laughs> I'm just, you know, someone who talks and likes to talk. And a good example is I can't change that. So what does somebody like me do if they want to teach a student-centered classroom? Well, what you can do is I can't change myself from being an extrovert, but I can make sure that my lessons are 90% pair work, group work tasks for students so that I have removed the opportunities for me to be talking too much. And that just comes from looking at myself. So I can't change who I am, but I can construct a classroom or a lesson that works to that. And then I can allow myself to walk and round and talk with students or engage with them, etc. But there's nothing I'm going to be able to do that's going to after all these years, right, that's mm. going to change me unless, of course, I get hit like in the head with like a hammer or something and suddenly I become quiet. So for beginning teachers or people starting out is, you know, identify, you know, your who you are, what are your, you know, your character, what's your personality and be true to that but and use it yes use it in the best ways possible but the other thing i want to go to is that it's something really true i've walked into classrooms and i could see based on my personality and the classroom personality they just hated me yeah they just hated me that i was like you know oh no it's this kind of teacher you know the happy you know ginky kind of talkative you know you know, and sometimes that's going to happen. And again, there's nothing you can do to change right. your personality. But that now brings up the opposite question is, is there anything you can do to change a class's personality? And I don't know, you know, that's where we're going, right? Mm -hmm. Can you change a class's personality? And I think part of it is, is that at that 20% mark, we're saying, right, it's really difficult. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if you let's say, could change a class personality. You think, oh, you know what, if I did some things, what would you do to change the personality of the class? How could you affect the dynamic or the sense of identity of the class? What do you think? I think uh, part of something that I, I said a little bit before about, um, which I talked, I was talking about a, a small group of the class, but I think it applies to the whole class as well, is that you, the teacher needs to be sensitive or aware of how the class wants or needs to be taught hmm. um, and don't ask me how you figure this out because I don't know <laughs> um, other than by hit or miss uh, so you're just kind of tossing out little different kinds of activities set and up see in what yeah throw something on sticks. the wall and see, see what, what sticks, sticks. Yeah. see how they respond to it and um, see if you can you know what how they respond and what the responses are and how you can, you know, maybe change the kind of tasks that you give them and how you approach things and how the way you have more explanation, less explanation. Um, 
more engagement. Maybe they need examples. Um, I have uh, right now I'm struggling with a class. Um, and um, interestingly, uh, it happens a lot with this specific group of kids. These are, it's a, again, this is a women's university. Um, the, they are uh, Japanese language, Japanese literature, Japanese culture majors. And um, it's kind of, it's interesting to watch because their personality manifests itself as they walk into the classroom. They walk in with like little gray clouds following them in and hovering over their heads. They're just so dour and so sad looking. Uh, it's almost comical. And there, there are a couple exceptions, right? Again, but, but not enough. Not enough. There's like two or three. Uh, each How year. many students in the class? Mm, 32, 33. So we're looking at about eight as the magic number. Yeah. And I don't have eight. Um, you got two or three. But so it begins a class and they're quiet, of course, is because they, you know, foreign language. Yeah, they're, they're allergic. Um, but, and, you know, humble brag here, third of the way through the classroom, halfway through the classroom. So, you know, you introduce the thing, you know, okay, now I split up into groups and go to group to group. Little by little, they're loosening up. They're talking, they're laughing, they're having fun. By the end of the class, I'm looking at smiles. But you know what? The next week when they walk in the classroom. <laughs> Resets. Reset. Every damn week. And, it's like, and I watch them and I'm like, just, I don't know, laugh or cry. And it's like, damn, <laughs> you guys, what happened? We made so much progress last week. And you guys were asking questions in English. You were doing this. It's like, what, what happened? This brings up a really important point, Tony. <laughs> Sorry, I'm interrupting you here, but Go, I, I realized, yeah, yeah, is that I have to point out, we get these students once a week again. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you what happened, is that there was a week between your class. Yeah. And there was no reinforcement for what you had done in the classroom in any of the other classrooms, most likely. Mm. So... Right. You're putting them into groups and pairs or spending a lot of time engaging with each other, working with each other. Right. Right. Hands off. Student centered classroom. Pretty yep. much most of the, I'm guessing out of 90 minutes, you're talking for maybe 10 to 15 at max. Right. Maybe a little more. But yeah. OK. So I'm at that like 10 to 15 point and I want my students on task all the time. So you do this. Right. And you're leaving the students alone to work and you're engaging them when they need and you're paying attention. But you're also away from them. So they have that like realm of privacy. Right. right. So that they can engage without the pressure of feeling like the teachers hanging over them. By the way, one of the things when I'm working. Um, with my student teachers, and I always have to tell them this again, is that, you know, when students are doing their pair work and their group work and they're practicing, leave them alone. <laughs> <laughs> they don't need the teacher hanging over them, correcting them, because by the way, if it's practice and you're correcting them, it's not practice. Right. <laughs> so it, what happens is I'll do my thing or you'll do your thing. This is what I'm guessing. And then they're going to spend the next, you know, five days of school without any reinforcement or any um, resurgence of those feelings because they're not having that kind of activity. I'm guessing that they've already forgotten what it was like the week before. And it's also, it's the atmosphere. It's the, the sense that the students are bringing to class. And that's why I think you're, you know, rebuilding it. 
So yeah, yeah for my, sure, for sure. Yeah. And but it's funny to see such a dramatic illustration of that because it's it's so predictable it's right just, and if the yeah. teacher next the teacher after you was doing the same thing and the teacher after that teacher was doing it right and yeah. this was on a daily basis you'd have obviously kids who i'm gonna you know go out on a limb here and say this is obvious to me that you would have students who would not be dragging in the great clouds behind them because right. they had been this has become normal now. They know that they're going to walk into a classroom and that it's going to actually be them doing things. It's, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, at least you're getting that within the 90 minutes. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. There's that at least, yeah. Yes. And um, I, I get to, I was like, like, you know, guys, this is really great at the end. So you can, let's do this again next week. I've said this to him and, yeah, doesn't catch. But I've also but, uh, seen the opposite happen too. By the way, Kevin, <laughs> to my class, really yeah. happy. By the time I get done with them, they're really sad I, and depressed. Done, but that they I've don't reset. That but that that doesn't reset. That's what's really interesting. If you do that with a class, and you you know, you, and of course we make mistakes, right? Yeah. You do the wrong activity; it's over their head. You take away their confidence on that one day. They don't forget that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> they come know. back. So I, I wish the reset would occur in that situation. That would be a topic for another day to find in that reset button. What is the reset? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. But I think when we're talking about critical mass, you know, we've talked about the different kinds of class personalities, and you know that I think. Most of the people I have talked to, by the way, you know, say that somehow it seems like the magic number is right at that 20% for critical mass. But we could also talk about critical mass in terms of the school administration and support and attitudes. Oh, and big. Things. That's really big. Right? Too. That's something we haven't even discussed when we've said critical mass is mm. how many supportive administrators or professors in a department or a program do you need to make it a really successful program? Right, because in the, in the overall student experience, what are they getting in the other classrooms? What kind of behavior is acceptable, not acceptable? What what, it's, what are the expectations of the other teachers? Because if you're an outlier and you're asking them to do something that they don't have to do for anybody else, then that's going to be really, you can have a really hard sell. Yes, you know? and I think it is a hard sell because the sense I'm getting is from my students is that most of their professors still are teacher-centered. Yeah, sure. Right, that the number of, you know, I don't understand how you could lecture almost, you know, anymore for 90 minutes. It's really beyond me at this point. Yeah, well, With, that's what people do. I mean, it's, right, but what I'm trying to say is that I think it's still far more common than we think. I was asking yeah. some of my students about their professors, and they said that out of like eight professors or nine professors, only one of their professors consistently, constantly on a weekly basis ran a student-centered class. Hmm. Everybody else was sitting down, taking notes, and listening to the teacher talk for 90 minutes. Yeah. So it might not be as prevalent as we think, because just because we teach this way. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. but on the other hand, I have those students coming to my classes and still ginky and really excited and happy to be in a student-centered classroom. Hmm. Yeah. What is there was? By the way, it was a quote. I was reading from someone, I just want to point out, because it's one of those great quotes, and it's one of the reasons just to support student-centered teaching, is that the person is a neuro, is a, what was a neurobiologist who became an educator and said, remember that it's the person doing the work who's growing the dendrites. Hmm. And I thought that was great. So 
you know, the, the lecturing professor is probably learning their material much more, right, than this, you know, growing more dendrites in the students. But we <laughs> have to, you know, figure out that even though there, we think it's critical mass, part of that critical mass is what's their experience in other classrooms. It's not just the number of students, but it's the number of how the number of classes that are geared towards them right. and teaching them in an appropriate way. And that I, I don't know what number that is because I'm not even sure now how many teacher centered classrooms or yeah. student centered classrooms are. Right. Yeah. 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 It's an interesting problem. Yeah. I want to make, I want to make one more point before we kind of wrap up. Cause um, and this is maybe for like, you know, again, maybe the less experienced teachers. So talking about critical mass, we haven't talk, talked at all about uh, timing and um, I talked a little bit about the beginning of the, the semester and things and how you um, address, you know, first identify the problem, make sure that you know what the problem is before you trot out a solution. Um, and um, the timing of it, I think, is very important. But again, really, I, I can't I explain what the right time to do it is. I mean, it's something that you have to learn by making mistakes the way that I have. Um but with um, unacceptable behavior, you know, you talk about classes that really do have control problems or, you know, whether it's just not answering or something like that. Um, there is something of a of a ratchet effect. And um, once the students get a sense that that behavior, that undesirable behavior, whatever it is, uh, establishes as itself as OK or the norm, then it gets really, really hard to change. Mm. Um, then it becomes established and that becomes part of like it or not your classroom's culture yes, that this is okay point. here. And, um, if you don't like it, you really need to act quickly enough to stop it from becoming the norm or the accepted behavior at the same time, <laughs> at the same time, one of the things that, um, I've kind of learned to do, uh, is to give students classes uh a little bit more rope mm. um and uh not panic so quickly because a lot of times you know you said a ganky class there's lots of energy there's lots of talking there's a lot of energy in the room not to panic and feel like i'm losing control of my class i'm just saying you know, give them some leash um what are they going to do with it um good good point because um a lot of times you'll be you you what you think you're squelching and you're getting them on on point on task and stuff and it's like well no 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 listen to them right they're kind of they're kind of doing it in their own way <laughs> but they're on it they're doing it just you don't panic let them go a little bit but you know it's, it's really hard to figure out that point okay when do you pull back right when we, do you rein them in we talked about this right that the hardest thing is is giving letting go Mm -hmm. with this class mm -hmm. and with a class like that you're, you're right you know do let them go they will usually run really really well mm. but that's a really good point tony is that especially with the genki class yep the really energetic class and you like i 
um, one, again, one of the students I was working with, I was observing them teaching and they had a really genki class and they came back afterwards when we were doing the reflection review session and they were just like, I lost control. I couldn't keep control of these guys. I wanted them to be in control. And I, was, I remember responding by saying, wow, I thought that was a really fun class. I would have really enjoyed working with them because you could have put them into groups and pairs, right? You see, again, if you have a super genki class, Pair work, group work, tasks. Yeah, break them up. Break them up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, let them run. Let them run. That's a Genki class is not a good fit for a teacher-centered chalk and talk session. Right. (laughs) But the other thing, Tony, I just want to add was the timing thing you you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember that one of my girlfriends from long ago was um, studying body work. And she had a very interesting teacher who had kind of created his own body work system. And he once was talking about the four rules of timing. And these seem really pretty good. I'm going to throw them out. And if you want, you can tell me that they're nonsensical. But I think they're really good. He said, here are the four rules of timing. The best thing is the right thing at the right time. Then he said, the next best thing is the wrong thing at the right time. Then going down third best, second to the bottom, he said, is the... um, wrong thing at the wrong time but he said the absolute worst thing is the right thing at the wrong time and that was an interesting insight that i think has been born out in teaching where you know you do the right thing but the students aren't at a point where they can hear it or this they're not ready for it mm-hmm. and that will always bomb and you know that gives me a way of like it's judging my timing you know was it the right thing at the right time the wrong thing etc it's a good way to work i don't know mm-hmm. i find it useful and especially when um, i'm in the classroom but yeah timing's important and do not fear the genki class mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. embrace it i think okay so i think yeah, so any yeah last last minute things <clears throat> practicals um, takeaways takeaways i just yeah just i say for me just like the one thing is like you know make sure that you really know what the problem is before you throw out your solution right make sure that you you know what you want identify the problem make sure that you're right right because you might be completely off you might think that the class is too hard um they might just be bored yes um or vice versa you might be overshooting them right you might think that they, they need more challenge they might just be you know a defense mechanism just hiding behind and not know anything what's going on. So um, make sure you know what the problem is that you're trying to fix. Yes. And let me just echo that by saying, I think it's almost impossible to tell the difference between students who don't understand and students who are bored. Mm-hmm. Pretty much they exhibit the same behavior, <laughs> right? And, yeah. and again, you know, don't assume internal states. Right. You have to have you have to really figure out, you know, Okay, I see this behavior now. I can't assume what's going on inside this person. I need some evidence. But, you know, try to identify the students. Right. The key students, if you can figure out what kind of activities match up for that critical mass so that you can get them to do the work for you. That's one of the key things is that getting the, the, the key players to carry their the load and the weight um be creative be willing to throw things at the wall and see what sticks as you said don't be scared to experiment 
um, it's officially, by the way, experimenting and seeing how it comes out, I think is called um, action research <laughs> or something, <laughs> right? That's really what it is, right? Identify a problem and then try to create an intervention for it. Be creative, be patient. Um, and remember also that things are in flux and that what we didn't talk about too much though, right? Is the, the classroom that starts one way and then ends up another way by the end of the 15 weeks. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole lot of variables here. But again, what we're talking about is that idea that there is a certain critical mass, number of students who can really influence or affect the dynamic and personality of a class, figure out ways to work with them, be creative, and also know your limits and be willing to accept what you can do and what you can't do, what you can change and what you can't change. Nice. Okay, I think that's a good wrap-up. So, we are Two Teachers Talking. That's the podcast. Yeah, twoteacherstalking.com, twoteacherstalking at gmail.com, Skype, Two Teachers Talking, and wherever else. <laughs> There's a pattern. You can pick up the pattern. And we are done. Yes, sir. Okay, Tony, thank you very much. And okay. Have a good week. <laughs>